Hello and welcome to the Why Did I Do That podcast, our weekly exploration of human behavior in all of its forms, uh, but especially as it pertains to the the wild world of money. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. It's great to have you uh, with me today. Hope it's as beautiful where you are uh, as it is here in Atlanta, Georgia this morning. Uh, So fun story, uh, real quick, actually got contacted by a friend from college who I hadn't talked to in almost two decades because her husband, who was a financial advisor, was listening to the podcast. Uh, It's stories like that that make this crazy sort of yelling into the abyss thing uh, so worthwhile. So if you're enjoying the podcast, please share, please leave a review on iTunes, uh, or please reach out and say hello to me, best of all, because it's great to hear from you. Um, So today we're going to talk about four practical steps for overcoming overconfidence. But I want to begin, as we do so many of these episodes, with a story. So Willard Van Orman Keen was a logician, philosopher, and professor at Harvard University. He's one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century, and he's celebrated for an unusual mutation to his office computer. He actually removed the question mark key, stating, quote, ideal uncertainties. While Professor Keene's extraction is comical and grandiose, it's a fine metaphor for how most of us go about our lives. We tend to see ourselves as the center of the universe, overstating the likelihood of positive occurrences and delegating the dangerous. Study out of Cook College found that we were very likely to say improbable good things were going to happen to us, like winning the lottery, Uh, but that we we were very unlikely to own the possibility of negative bad things happening to us, like getting divorced or getting cancer. So this isn't all bad. You know, this overconfidence, this overconfident tendency gets us out of bed. It gives us the courage to talk to the attractive person at the bar that we may have no business talking to, and it encourages us to start restaurants and businesses, both of which do a world of good and neither which makes any sense in a purely rational, probabilistic sense. But in a refrain that you're beginning to become familiar with now from from my work, the adaptations that serve us so well elsewhere in life are ill-fit to the needs of the investor. So becoming a behavioral investor means examining the world in ways entirely foreign to us, Viewing ourselves as an insignificant part of a much larger tapestry with no special gifts, knowledge, or luck. No special gifts, knowledge, or luck. And it means owning that we are, on average, very average. And the paradox in owning our own personal mediocrity is that it makes us, in the strictest sense of the word, exceptional and different. It's not about believing in yourself. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's about realizing that the less you need to be special, the more special you will become. As investor and author Jim O'Shaughnessy says in What Works on Wall Street, quote, the key to successful investing is to recognize that we are just as susceptible to crippling behavioral biases as the next person. And I would even go a step further and say this is the key to having a good relationship and even living a happy life. So if you're now convinced of the need for greater humility in your life and in your investing, a natural next question is what concretely can I do about this and where can I start? Because again, this is very much 
uh, a part of who we are uh, almost as a, as a whole human species. So the journey toward admitting ignorance and culpability is winding and difficult, but it has both financial and relational rewards. So we want to talk today about four specific ways that you can get started. So the first is what I call man of steel, the man of steel approach. So you've likely heard of a straw man argument in which a weakened character of an opposing opinion is presented only to be summarily dismantled. A less discussed but more effective critical thinking technique is to create a steel man, which is the exact opposite and represents the very best thinking and most rigorous empirical proof of an opinion with which you disagree. Rather than using a straw man as a rhetorical punching bag to feed your ego, build a steel man that will sharpen your thinking, cause you to look in dark corners, and consider new points of view. Find the smartest person you know that disagrees with you, ask them how they feel, and shut your mouth. The second thing, the second piece of advice, is to love the questions. In Letters to a Young Poet, Rainer Maria Rilke writes to his protege, quote, I want to beg you, as much as I can, dear sir, to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers, which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. That's the end of the quote. So Western culture is in love with certainty and bravado, but the uncertainty of markets and life necessitates that we pursue a dynamic approach that is rooted in a fascination with the process rather than looking for silver bullets. The paradoxical truth is that only by learning to love the questions will we ever truly find the answers. The third point is to take your time. For years, scientists have puzzled at the evolutionary reason for depression. Species tend not to adapt in ways that are self-harming, and yet depression on its face does very little good and a whole lot of harm to the organisms it touches. But more recent research shows that deep sadness may have a strong evolutionary purpose that is rooted in the depressive tendency to ruminate on problems. By playing and replaying a negative event over and over in our minds, we often arrive at solutions that can be called upon at a future date. What hurts in the moment may be profoundly beneficial down the road. As Warren Buffett has pointed out, there are no called strikes in investing. All the time pressure we may feel is arbitrary and self-imposed. We would do well to follow the admonition of John Dewey in his book, How We Think. His quote, to be genuinely thoughtful, we must be willing to sustain and protract that state of doubt, which is the stimulus to thorough inquiry, so as not to accept an idea or make a positive assertion of a belief until justifying reasons have been found. If you're sad, if you're upset, if you're frustrated, this can sometimes be life's natural way of telling you to take a pause, to take a moment, 
to ruminate and toss these ideas around in your mind until you've arrived at something uh, worth acting upon. And then the final point I want to make here towards overcoming ego is to take the outside view. So when making a decision, we tend to rely on what social scientists call the inside view. So the inside view is our perception of a decision as informed by our own biases, anecdotal experience, and a convenient sample of whatever data pops to mind first. Conversely, taking the outside view means a more dispassionate appraisal that depends more on base rates, probability, and facts than convenience and personal experience. In his book, Think Twice, Michael Mobison sets forth steps to taking an outside view of a problem. They are, first, select a reference class, which means to compare your problem to other problems like it. Second, he suggests that we assess the distribution of outcomes which is a, a fancy way of saying to examine the rates of success and failure. Based on these first two steps, we then estimate probabilities. Based on the external evidence, we estimate timelines, failure rates, and obstacles to success. If it takes most people to write uh, two years to write a book, it's probably going to take you two years to write a book too. You're probably not going to, to get it knocked out in three months. And then finally, we fine-tune our predictions. We let bumps in the road and changing circumstances alter our estimates and our beliefs accordingly. So by relying on external data, you're much more likely, you're, you're likely to arrive at a much more realistic picture than if you had just leaned on your own personal biases and experience. And then finally, I lied. There are apparently five and not four. <laughs> finally, uh, those who can teach. So to, to really become more humble, one of the things that we can try and do is to teach a concept. So a quick question for you, uh, gentle listener. Do you know how a toilet works? So on a scale from 1 to 10, how familiar would you say you are with the workings of a toilet? I want you to go ahead and, go ahead and answer. Go ahead and give me a 1 to 10 there wherever you are. So now, now that you've given your answer, this is again something you interface with, you know, a, a couple of times a day, a toilet. I want you to explain to me in detail the mechanics of the toilet. Okay? So think about it. How well could you explain the mechanics of the toilet and how it does its work? So if you're done with that, let me ask again, on a scale of 10, how well do you understand the workings of a toilet? So research by Stephen Sloman of Brown, Stephen Sloman of Brown and Philip Fernbach at the University of Colorado shows that having to teach a concept has a humbling effect that brings our beliefs more in line with our actual understanding. So the duo have used this technique to moderate beliefs about everything from single-payer healthcare to, well, toilets, and have found that, quote, as a rule, strong feelings about issues do not emerge from deep understanding. That's immensely profound. I want to repeat that. Their finding is that, as a rule, strong feelings about issues do not emerge from deep understanding. The next time you feel as though you must buy or sell the security, uh, that you must make one decision or another, take a moment to explain in detail the factual reasons why this is so. 
you're likely to find that your enthusiasm has gotten the best of your brain and nothing brings you back into sync like having to teach. So I hope you've enjoyed this handful of tips for how to become less ego-driven in your life, uh, to check your own biases, to check your own beliefs, and to gain a more accurate picture of the world around you uh, as well as your portfolio. I hope that you're enjoying the Why Did I Do That podcast. I appreciate you listening. And if you're interested in supporting the podcast, there's, there's really two primary means by which you can do that. Now, the first thing that I would encourage you to do is to go out and buy my book, The Laws of Wealth. It was voted the best investment book of the year, something I'm extremely proud about. It's been translated into a number of languages now, uh, and it's, it's done very well, and I'm very proud of it. So again, The Laws of Wealth, Psychology and the Secret to Investment Success is the name of the book. Uh, you can catch it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or iBooks. I would love it if you would do that and if you would leave a, a great review. And then the second thing I'd, I'd encourage you to do is to go check out my firm, Nocturne Capital. Uh, you can find that at www.nocturnecapital.com. Love to hear from you. Uh, at Daniel Crosby on Twitter. I'm very active on LinkedIn, or you can reach out to me personally through the Nocturne Capital website. Thank you again for listening to Why Did I Do That? I hope that your week is better uh, as you begin to apply some of the learnings from today. Thank you.